Well, hello again. Um, again, thanks so much for gathering. Thanks for being part of the, just that time of, of celebration. Uh, it's always just a, a favorite time when we get to celebrate with these, these families. Um, so again, thanks for bringing the church into this place. My name is Jamie. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Crosspoint if we've never been introduced. And if you're gathered again for Crosspoint at home, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into your living room, wherever you happen to be. And so friends, we're continuing the, this series uh, that we began. I think this is week 11 now. We've got a few weeks left. It's gonna take us all the way to Advent. Um, and it's a journey through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's kind of referred to as the primeval history. As we look at this and all that it has to teach us is really setting the trajectory for understanding the totality of the Bible and really to make sense of this world that we inhabit and like what we're called to as the church. And so it's this series called Creation and Chaos, looking at our origin story. And so we are story formed creatures and we need to know this story that we've been caught up in. And so, um, and I forgot to do this. I think you guys will probably figure this out. If you're fourth and fifth graders, uh, you can go to your class, but I think they already left. So I, f I forgot to announce that. So, or if you'd rather go hang out with the fourth and fifth graders, you could go as, as well. So anyway, um, but this morning we come to Genesis chapter six. And so I wanna encourage you uh, to have the scriptures in front of you. You do not need to hear my take, my opinion. And there's gonna be some things even this morning that are gonna be like, hey, here's my, my best understanding. There's some complexity to this particular text and I want you to have it in front of you. And so you can use the Bibles that are in the pews. You might've brought a Bible yourself. You can also take your phone and scan the QR code um, and it'll bring up a menu where it says sermon notes and you can click that and the text will be there um, or you can access that this is cp.church and click that little blue next steps icon. But this begins the story of Noah, the ark and flood. So whether you have been in church basically your whole life, I'm sure you've heard this story. Or if you're somebody that's like, I don't know, I don't ever go to church. My guess is though, you've probably at least heard cultural references to, to Noah and the flood and the ark. It seems to be something that we at least have some general familiarity with. And it's a story that if we're honest, I think raises a lot of questions as well. So I wanna read all of Genesis 6, again, 1 to 22. Uh, this is all of Genesis, uh, this chapter. Um, and then we'll make our way through this text. But if you're able, please stand as I read God's word this morning. And if you're wondering, does the Bible sometimes have some strange things in it? Oh, it's about to get interesting here. All right, so as you'll see throughout this text, but maybe in particular in the first four verses. So, but hear God's word. Genesis chapter six, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Hapheth. 
And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side and make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven and everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up and it shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we get into this, I mean, I think it's, it's worth asking, considering, right? Like, what kind of story is this? I mean, what, what's going on in these open verses, opening verses, sons of God and the women of this earth and Nephilim, which maybe your translation says giants that are in the land. And then what's all this thing about, okay, there's a man named Noah and he's gonna survive this flood, but everybody else is gonna die. I mean, like it, it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? And I was, I was listening to a, a lecture uh, by a, a man talking about this particular account. Um, and in it, he, he referenced something. I mean, we just gave out the children's Bibles, right? Um, and most children's Bibles, I think, will include Noah and the ark. And depending on which one you read, some are more theologically accurate than others. Um, but there's a particular children's book, children's Bible of sorts, that I was not familiar with that this, uh, this lecturer, this teacher referenced. And he said, it's called the Awkward Moments Children's Bible. Now, this is not an endorsement, all right? Um, I did purchase it and down, download the Kindle version of it. I'm not saying you should, so please do not run, run out, all right, and, and, and purchase this. But my understanding is that the author is somebody who grew up in the church and has since walked away from the church, walked away from his, his upbringing and has lots of questions. I think if, if we're honest, right? I mean, that, that's sad. And yeah, I think if we're honest too, like if we... Pay attention. Think about what I just read here a moment ago. Forget even the first four verses about like what's going on there, which we'll get into in a moment. But even like the, oh, God wipes out all of humanity. Like at what level is this a children's story, right? Like we've kind of culturally made it a, as such. But it's, can we admit like, it's a pretty bizarre story to say the least. And in the awkward moments, children's Bible, the author says this, most parents wouldn't think twice about reading the story of Noah's Ark to their kids at bedtime, but which version? The cheery, colorful children's version where God chooses Noah's family to go for a boat ride and wait out a bad storm and save all of the helpless animals. Oh, that sounds fun, doesn't it? Or the story of God, our father, 
who after losing control of his children on earth through an epic temper tantrum, killed everyone and everything with a natural disaster. All of the other mommies and daddies, all of the other sissies and puppies, dead forever. Right? Now, I I spared you the cover art that goes with that. um, So you're welcome. Um, But like, um, needless to say, the drawings were not the former of just like this family and kind of out in this boat with all the animals and everybody smiling, right? Like this is a violent story. Like what are we to make of this? And so this morning, I wanna dive into this. I wanna like look at what is this, on the one hand, I'm guessing a familiar story, but how do we see it with new and fresh eyes and hear it again afresh? Not so that we grow cynical or jaded or, or end up where what I just read to you, but to acknowledge like this is difficult stuff to work through, but to see God and his grace and his, his mercy. Like if you got questions about some of these things in the Bible, like welcome, I'm glad you're here. Like I read this and I'm like, man, like how do we make sense of this? We wanna be a community where we can ask questions of this and know like the Bible, oh, it's, it's so beautifully, wonderfully surprising again and again and again. And it's telling one story from beginning to end about God's grace. And we're gonna see that even if at first glance, it might be difficult to, to see it. And so to understand God's grace, we have to make sure that we rightly understand how broken things are. And so I wanna look at the first five verses where really we see this progressive, ongoing, like depravity, a lostness, a brokenness, a darkness, a chaos. I mean, things, God had created things in Genesis one and two to be a particular way, ordered and beautiful. It's what the Hebrew scriptures speak of as shalom. And now it's fractured and splintered and man. I mean, we've already had a brother kill another brother. There's all these things that are taking place. And then we get to Genesis six and it's highlighting for us just how bleak things are, how bad things have gotten. And so I will not pretend to be, to give you like, oh, and here's the definitive word on what's going on in these opening verses. But I do wanna offer you some things that I've found compelling, some things that I find to be like, okay, I think this is a a best guess as to what's going on, but making sure that we continue to stay zoomed out and not get so caught up in all of the details, but rather remember it's painting a picture about our need, about desperately we need God to intervene. So again, verse one, I read it this a moment ago, verse one and two says, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Like so far, so good, right? What was the call to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, right? So this is continuing even after they've been kicked out of Eden, even after Cain has killed Abel and now there's Seth, is this another son that's been born and wondering, oh, is is this gonna be this godly line? It says there was this multiplication that was happening. But then we get to verse two and it says this, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, we don't have time to get into all of this, but I don't wanna skip this because I think we read this and we're like, hey, what's, what's going on here? So I think we should try and, and address it. And there have been scholars done through the years who've landed in very different places about this. Lots of scholars that I re- respect, all right, deeply. Like I'm gonna share a view with you that apparently like Luther and Calvin held. Um, and humbly, I would say, I don't know if I hold that same view, even on the eve of the Protestant Reformation, okay? Like, um, so, uh, but what, what some would say is, is this, okay, that, that the sons of God, 
is simply referring to, well, that was the godly line of Seth and they're doing the right thing, but they kind of got caught up with the wrong women, all right? And so there was these, these women and so they, they married them. And so there was this kind of intermingling that marriage of those that were more from the line of Seth and some from the line of Cain, things were going badly. That I'm probably not fully representing Luther and Calvin, all right? Um, but, but generally that would be kind of a, a view that would be taught there. You got other people that will talk about, well, this is just some sort of kings that have, they've kind of made some bad decisions and they're power hungry. I mean, there's, we don't have to go into all, all of those things. But I think one of the things with the scriptures we have to pay attention to is when the Bible uses a particular phrase, a word or phrase, like where does that show up in other places in the scripture? That actually helps us best understand, like it allows scripture to interpret scripture. And sons of God, the literal language here is the sons of Elohim. Elohim, all right, is a word that shows up all throughout the creation account in Genesis 1, right? This more general name for God, that Elohim created. And anytime sons of God show up, well, it shows up five times in the Hebrew scriptures in the, in the Old Testament. So you got it right here in Genesis 6, and then there's four other times. Again, not time to go and look at all of it, but that's, that would be accurate. That shows up five times. And the sons of Elohim, every time it shows up, it speaks of spiritual beings. To be a son of Elohim, to be a son of God, is to be a spiritual being in the presence of God, sort of like this holy council that is there, this divine council. And so I believe what this actually is communicating is what you have here are these beings that were sons of Elohim, all right? We would know them as to be as angels, these heralds, these messengers, these spiritual beings that were created to be in a particular domain. They were created to be in the heavenly realm. But instead, they have now come to the earthly realm. They have moved out of the lane, so to speak, of which they, they should be in. We'll talk about this more in a moment. And these spiritual beings have taken the daughters of man. In fact, what actually is going on here really seems to be, scholars will speak of like an inversion of what we read in Genesis chapter three. Genesis three is the, the fall of humanity, right? Let me read to you just verse six of Genesis three. It says, so when the woman, this is Eve, right? Notice the words that are highlighted. When she saw that the tree was good for food, she's like, ooh, that's an attractive piece of fruit. There's something compelling. There's something de desirable, about, desirable about it. And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she sees, and then what happens next? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So what you have in Genesis 3, right, is you see this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there's a discontent. There's a taking matters into their own hands, Adam and Eve, saying, oh, we see, oh, this looks appealing. They're suddenly discontent with all that God has given them and provided them. Like we wanna be like God. And so they took of the fruit. Now think about what we just read in Genesis six. You have the sons of God, all right? These spiritual beings, similar, right? You got Adam and Eve that are kind of like, we wanna be more than just humans. Like we, almost this longing for being these spiritual beings, all right? Not content. And then in what we have here, it tells us that the sons of God, they saw what? That the daughters of man were desirable, they were attractive. And the language here, it's the same as Genesis 3, verse six. And so they took as their wives any they chose. 
So rather than, and likely what is going on here is where God had kicked humanity out of the Garden of Eden, you now have these spiritual beings that somehow think, you know what? We'll try and bring eternal life to humanity. Rather than obeying God and his plans that he has kicked them out because they have sinned and they have rebelled, all right? God, they're now disobeying God's orders. They're entering into the human realm. And at this point, they are fallen angels. And so God says this, all right? Like he, he sees this um, and he's, he's not happy with it. We're gonna look at his response in, in verse three. But I realize in talking about this, right? Maybe you're feeling some of this tension of like, that just seems crazy, right? Like these sort of spiritual beings, did that really happen? Now, listen, this is an ancient text. We're trying our best to, to understand this, but I actually do think that if we allow the scriptures to interpret the scriptures, and if we really do pay attention, despite our modern Western sort of post-enlightenment world that we live in, that tends to think of everything as the rational, tends to think of everything as just like, what's right here that we can define? Because for Hundreds of years, people lived with a view of the world that it was sort of enchanted, that there literally were real spirits and powers. And the Bible is written in that world. And the Bible believes in that world, that the Bible speaks of there being powers and principalities, all these things that we're battling against. It's not just flesh and blood. It's not just what we can see, that there's actual real spiritual darkness. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place. Jude, the book of Jude, this letter in verse six says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Scholars believe this is a reference to what's happening here in Genesis chapter six. Like these are fallen angels who did not stay in their sphere. They were supposed to be up there as rulers in the heavenly realm. And they're like, no, we're gonna enter in. We're gonna take matters into our own hands. It's the inversion of Genesis three and it leads to chaos. It leads to destruction. It leads to a re active rebellion against God and his ways. And though we might wrestle with this, again, we have to understand and acknowledge that there is this very real spiritual realm. Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Genesis says this, if the modern reader finds this story incredible, that reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or ill. But those who believe that the creator could unite himself to human nature in the virgin's womb will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. What's he getting at? He's saying, hey, it's helpful to remember that like the story we believe in as Christians, not that Genesis 6 doesn't raise questions, but like, I believe in the virgin birth. I, I believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I mean, these are the, this is the, these are the big E on the I chart, so to speak, right? And when I'm simply saying like, hey, acknowledge that you believe in that. And to some people that's gonna seem crazy. But if you can believe that the God man, Jesus was resurrected on the third day, it opens up the possibility of all these things that we're seeing here, right? And I think the more we understand this, we, I think we actually get a clearer picture of like, oh, like what we're actually up against and all that Jesus accomplished and all that he has conquered. And so as we look then at verse three, it says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. Again, it's another complex verse, but I think what it's getting at is the Lord saying, all right, I'm the one that brings life. My spirit's the one as he breathed life into humanity. It's not gonna abide forever. I'm not gonna let this go on forever. 
all of this active rebellion, all of these things, like God is long suffering and he is patient, but there, what this is teaching us in Genesis six is there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. There is a day where it, it is known you're, that you're either with God, you're with Jesus, or you're not. I mean, it's speaking to that. God's saying, hey, I'm not gonna let this go on forever. I care too much about this world that I've created and my image bearers that are there. And then when God says, his days shall be 120 years. If you were here last week, you know, we went through Genesis 5, which is this genealogy, uh, which are always the, you know, the most fun things to go through in the Bible. But as we went through it and you see people live in eight, 900 years, there are some that have said, oh, this is God speaking to the eventual shortening of life. Because I've yet to meet the person that's like 950 years old, right? Like, oh, somewhere like the lifespans got shortened. And, and listen, that, that might be what this is speaking to, but if we keep reading in the book of Genesis, we'll see people like Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and others that actually live more than 120 years. So it doesn't seem to be like, just like that. Like there's people that live a little bit beyond that. They're not like eight, 900, but they're closer to 150, 160 years. What I actually think is going on and one of the longest held beliefs, interpretation of this, that the 120 years is God saying, all right, the clock is ticking now. Noah? Here's my instructions, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But there's 120 years from that moment until the floodwaters are going to come. It's 120 years from Noah to build the ark, to build the boat. But it's also 120 years for the rebellious people to actually repent. And I think it would be fair to assume that as we see throughout the scriptures, when God says sends Jonah to Nineveh, 40 days and then it'll be overturned, right? And people repent, like God is, God is willing to relent. He, is a, he desires to extend grace and mercy, the heart of God, but it's 120 years. So there's this 120 year period of time. And then we get to verse four and it says, the Nephilim, sometimes it gets translated, the giants were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So not only did they exist before the flood, apparently they, they resurface later on. They're not done away with. So somehow they can appear again. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These mighty men uh, of old, this is not spoken of a way to be like, yeah, those are the heroes. It's actually a reference to those that would be the Babylonians in the future, like enemies of God and his people. We're gonna see this as we get into Genesis 10 and 11 in a few weeks. In the Nephilim, what is implied in this text, it's the author's way of saying, okay, you have the sons of God, the sons of Elohim taking the, the women, right? That the spiritual beings are now impregnating these women and what is born to them, their offspring are the Nephilim. If you're like, man, didn't know church would be so weird this morning. Welcome, right? But I do believe that's what's being communicated. Now, I don't think everything hinges on this. If you're like, oh, I think it's something different. Like we can still be friends and you're still welcome here and I might be wrong. But this is a fascinating thing because that word Nephilim, it shows up in one other place in Numbers 13, as the people of God are getting ready to go into the promised land. And remember the spies? Some of you remember the story, the spies are sent into the land and like 10 of the spies are like, we can't do it. We're like grasshoppers compared to these people. Like they're gonna kill us. They're gonna squash us. They're, they're giants in the land and they talk of the Nephilim. 
scholars believe this is a continuation. Like there's this battle. There's these enemies of God that keep showing up. And perhaps it's more than just simply these people who are extraordinarily tall. What if there's actual real spiritual, like a, a spiritual, an evil spirituality about this? The Bible is like open to the, those things. And I think this is what it's getting at that these, these giants, these are people that are gonna stand opposed to God. We don't have time to get into all of it now, but if you follow the rabbit trail from the Nephilim and, and different references that are made in the scriptures, eventually we come to a story of David fighting a guy. Remember this guy that he had to fight, right? What was it? This giant named Goliath. And there's this doing away with these giants in, in the land. This likely is still a reference to what's going on here. And so it's explaining to us and explaining to the original audience like what they're going to be up against in the days ahead. But more than anything, remember, keep zooming out. I know we want to get into the weeds, like, what is this? I got lots of questions and I got lots of questions, right? But just verse five, the summary, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you remember Genesis 1, the repeated pattern? And the Lord saw, and then he declares what? It's good at the completion of each day. But do you notice the contrast now? Like the Lord is no longer seeing and saying it's good and seeing the pinnacle of creation, day six of humanity and declaring it's not only good, it's very good. Now it tells us the Lord God saw. And what does he see this time? It's not something that's good or very good. He sees the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not just every now and again, but evil continually. There is this active rebellion. So these opening verses, I know we're spending a bit more time on this, but they are painting a picture of just how broken things are, how desperate things are, how, how hopeless things feel. And it's in these places that our God loves to show up. That's what this is communicating. So there's a decision that the Lord is going to make, all right? And he is going to bring judgment. It tells us in verse seven, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The honesty of our God who would communicate, I, I am sorry about this. He'll speak of being grieved about these things, deeply saddened as he sees the brokenness. As we think about our day, right? We think about, when I think about like my sin, I don't think I understand enough how deeply it grieves the heart of God. When I choose to do what I want, when I'm no different than Adam and Eve, getting out of my lane, reaching for this thing, thinking I need something more than what God has provided for me, it grieves the heart of God. Our sin is serious. It's so serious that it would put Jesus on a cross. But we see God's heart for people, even in the midst of him bringing this judgment. Verse 13 speaks again, reiterating what verse seven says. I wanna put before you what is the New American Standard version, which is just this, it's not as readable, but it's this kind of more word for word. And it says this, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And so, yes, God is going to destroy. Yes, there are going to be lots of people that die. But there's also this nuance that's being communicated. The end of all flesh has come before me. Sounds like Romans 1 when God says he's just given them over to their desires. Okay. 
It's either can be God's will be done or humanity's will be done. And God sometimes just gives people over to their desires. And it's a spiral. It's a moving away further and further from the will of God, which ultimately is separation from God, which is ultimately what hell is. And so God is observing the end of all flesh has come before me. He's literally saying, I've made this whole world. And if this just keeps playing out like it is right now, it's all going to get destroyed. And so yes, he brings judgment, but he's doing it in a way because he actually wants to bring about another creation. He does not want the story to end. God has plans and purposes for his people, for his creation. And this will not be the end of the story. In fact, in this time and place, there are other, there's literally you can Google this later on, but there are so many different accounts of floods back in this, this time period. Almost like every culture, all right, has particular stories. Maybe one that you've read, the Gilgamesh epic, that might be something that you've heard of. But here's the thing that they all have in common from around that time and that place, like the Babylonians, the Akkadians, and all, all of these things. You wanna know why a worldwide flood happened, all right? And why a boat was created and the animals had to go in there. I mean, like there's a lot of overlap and similarity. According to all of those stories, it wasn't because of the rebellion of the people and the wickedness of the sons of Elohim and all of the things that, that were taking place that we see in Genesis 6. It's because the people were too noisy and they were disrupting the gods up in the heavens. And they're like, they can't keep it down. What an annoyance. Like, turn the music down, guys, for the love. Like, that's literally what it's talking about. And they're like, you know what? We'll take care of this. And they send a flood. You want to talk about like petulant, like temper tantrum? That's the competing narratives. And our God comes in and says, no, I got plans and I'm going to rescue and I'm going to care and I'm going to see this through. But if I just let this keep playing out, like it's going to end in death and destruction and devastation. And I can't have that. So he tells us there's regret, there's, there's grief, but there's also ultimately there's grace. Because in verse eight, it says, but Noah, Noah found favor, it says, in the eyes of the Lord. It's the word grace, unmerited favor. Noah wasn't awesome. Noah wasn't a perfect person. Noah had been given the gift of grace. Unmerited favor was bestowed upon him. And God says, I'm gonna take a remnant. I'm gonna take him and his wife and his sons and their wives. I'm going to put them on this boat. And there will be the waters below. And there'll be this, the only bit of dry land will be what's in that ark. And on that ark, there's a little window, a little skylight as the, as it says, looking up to the heavens. This should be starting to ring a bell too of like, oh, this is communicating something about like what took place in Genesis 1 and 2. So that's what we need to explore for our last, this, as we get into this last section, because ultimately it's a story of deliverance as we look at verses 14 to 22. And I want us to ask for a moment as we look, I guess really particularly verses 14 to 16, what are these details here telling us? Because let me, let me read verse 14, okay? At this point, God has made his decision. He's made his declaration, all right? And then he tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, you're like, hey, what's gopher wood? Nobody knows, actually, um, that people have been wondering that ever since this story occurred, right? Um, but make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch, all right? 
This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, which a cubit, best guess, people would say is about 18 inches. All right, so you got about this 450 foot long floating vessel of some sort, right? It's breadth, 50 cubits, it's height, 30 cubits. Make a roof, or it can be translated this window, the skylight for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark in its side. Oh yeah, and then make it with lower, second, and third decks. Okay, just remind I'm not a builder, surprise, surprise, okay? Um, But the little bit that I do know is that even a great builder, if they were given this, oh yeah, here's the blueprints of what I want, all right? These these are not blueprints. I I think God communicated more to Noah. No one had ever built a boat before. No one ever seen a flood before, right? Like all, all of these things. We just have certain things that were recorded. So we have to ask for a moment, like, why these details? Why are these things here? Because this is not a thorough blueprint, right? Like, I don't think you can take those things and just come up with like, now I know there's like the Ark Encounter and all, all those things. And maybe some of you have visited that. I looked at videos of it. Pretty pretty impressive. Like this thing you can go and they've tried to construct, but it's, it's conjectured, right? It's like, this is what it might look like, but you can't get that from just these verses here. And what's so fascinating is we just got to explore this for a few minutes. What do these details, what are they telling us? And one of the first things that really should jump off the page is when it says create an ark, all right? When it says in verse 14, make yourself an ark, it's not a Hebrew word. It's a borrowed word from the Egyptians. Kind of interesting. The Hebrew, or sorry, the Egyptian word is teba. Let's say it together, teba, right? Teba, it can mean a chest, a divine shrine, or even a coffin. Now, in Egyptian culture, what's so fascinating, and as another aside, this word shows up one other place, shows up in Exodus chapter two. Do you know what else is called the Teba in the Bible? Remember who's writing this account in Genesis? Well, it's Moses. And Moses was a little baby boy. To escape being killed by the Pharaoh, he was put in a what? A basket. But the real word that's being used there is he was put in a teba. He was put in this little basket there floating upon the water and God was going to rescue. It's this way of saying God is about to do this whole thing. Again, this is showing us the heart of God. In this teba, what would happen for the Egyptians is literally they would take this box because that's what's being described here. Don't think normal boat, right? bow and stern and all all of those things. It's literally just a giant rectangle that's gonna float on the water. That's what it's being described as. There's no rudder that's described, right? There's no captain for this. Like it's, it's a reminder that God's sovereign, he's ruling and reigning, he's gonna get this thing through, all right? This is a weird boat if you're into making boats, right? This intentional word of teba, guess what the Egyptians would do? They would construct these little shrines to be put in temples. And then they would take these little wooden boxes and it would have a little door on the side. And what they would slide in there is they'd make these little images of the gods and they would place them in there. Hmm. And then during a festival or to celebrate a victory, they would sometimes take these tebas with the little images of their gods placed inside and they would float them down the Nile. Now, Think about what's happening here in Genesis 6. Noah's going to build this boat, right? Who's going to go into it from a little side door? Who's going to go into the Tabah but the images of God? 
and they're going to float across the water. And oh yeah, there's going to be all two of every kind of animal in there. And it's going to be a smelly mess. I mean, just think about that for just, right. Um, it's not really in the text, but to me, I'm like, that's where my mind goes. But anyway, um, and they're going to be in there and somehow there's going to be peace. You don't read any record of like the lion tearing up one of Noah's sons or anything, right? What does this remind us of? This is Genesis 1 again playing out where God is bringing order out of the chaos. And there's dry land that's going to emerge, right? Like all of these things, God communicating, hey, I've got a plan. I'm bringing deliverance. And then it tells us, all right, make it with a lower, a second, and a third deck. And I know this is a lot of detail, but just hang with me for this last couple minutes. Why that information? Like, why is this detail given here? As people have studied this, it's worth asking ourselves, where else do we see kind of three tiers, three levels, so to speak? One of the places we see it is God separating the waters below on the dry land and the waters above or the heavens, like this three-tiered universe. But then as we've studied, we've realized that, that God fashions humanity and he places them in the garden. Here are these words out of Genesis 2, 8 to 9, and this will tie to the three levels. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden that's in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, now we read that and we might not necessarily be thinking three tiers, but it's there. God creates the world, he creates the land, okay? But is that where the man is put? No, it tells us that the man is put in the, he's put in Eden, so there's general land, but then it tells us, it's building out these layers. And he's saying there's Eden and then within Eden, what? There's a garden. So not all of Eden is the garden. And then within the garden itself, there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And though I didn't read it right now, we read that there's a stream that flows out, meaning that that was the elevated place. And so all of this stuff is communicating to us that Eden, friends, was the place, it was the temple. That's how we're to see this. Eden was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. This is why Adam and Eve could walk with God in the cool of the day, that there was this free access between the spaces. Like this earth was overlapped with heaven. That's what we're made for. And so that is being communicated there. And now what is happening is the ark is this symbolic Eden. God is saying, I've not given up on that dream. And I'm fashioning this in such a way. You think about if we were to continue reading in the scriptures and we get into the book of Exodus and we get to chapters 25 to 30, what would we be reading about besides just some mind-numbing details about the tabernacle, right? But the tabernacle in the most simplest description of it would be what? Every time they set up, it was three tiers. They couldn't make it vertically levels, but they had the outer court, the outer courtyard, and you had the holy place. And then within that, the holy of holies. 
And the Holy of Holies is where God's presence dwelt. It was the overlap of heaven and earth. This was the formula from which, the blueprint from which the temple was built. None of this is by accident. This is all communicating that God's desire is to bring us back to that, that God is going to make a way. He's not given up on his plan for humanity, for his creation. He sees it unraveling. He sees the direction it's going. He sees the violence and he reaches down in his grace and he creates this symbolic Eden that will float upon the waters with all of the animals. And he's going to do this work of new creation. This is where the story is heading but it's beyond what Noah could do. Because we know Noah is fallible. We're gonna see that in the chapters ahead. But some few hundred years later, here's the beautiful thing. There's this interaction at the beginning of the book of John. At one level, it's fascinating because John records that the word came and dwelt among us, which can be translated, the word came and tabernacled among us. That is not by accident. It's like, oh, is that overlap of heaven and earth? Is it going to happen again? Are we going to be able to get back into the presence of God for what we are created for? And then there's this interaction where there's this man named Nathaniel, all right? Um, And he has this encounter with Jesus who's shown up on the scene, the word made flesh. And he has Jesus say a couple of surprising things to him where Jesus knew a bit of like where Nathaniel had been earlier in the day. And he's telling that to Nathaniel and Nathaniel's all impressed. And then Jesus says this, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see. He's, gonna, he's like, oh, you thought it was impressive that I knew where you were earlier? This will blow your mind. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. He's like, oh, you just wait. Jesus is communicating in no uncertain terms. He's come to restore the heaven and earth overlap. He is saying here, truly, truly, I see to you, you're gonna see heaven open. I am the ladder, I am the bridge, I am the pathway between heaven and earth. And one might expect this to say, see the angels of God ascending and descending to the son of man. The son of man is Jesus' most popular way of referring to himself, but rather it says on the son of man, meaning the only way we get to the heavenly realm is through the work of Jesus. That passageway, he's the portal, he's the access point, he is the overlap. And then if we were to flip the page in the book of John, we get to John chapter two, And Jesus is looking out over this beautiful building that the Jews called their temple with the outer courtyard and the holy place and the holy of holies. And Jesus says these provocative words, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The people mock him and they scoff at him. Like, what are you talking about? This has taken us decades to build, but what is he communicating? He's like, you don't get it, but you will. You don't get it now, but you will get it. And we get to live on the other side of the cross and resurrection to know that he is the temple. He is that space. He is the very presence of God coming to dwell with us. And he's bringing us back so that we might be able to be in the presence of God for which we were created for. And he's like, the way that that's gonna happen is I'm gonna be cut off. I'm gonna go to the cross, this temple. I am the temple. I'm the very presence of God, the overlap of heaven and earth. And I'm gonna be destroyed. I'm gonna be cut off from the father so that you can be welcomed in. And then I've got this whole new plan that's been playing out from the very beginning. It's not so new, but it's the continuation. And he's saying, not only am I that temple that's going to be rebuilt, but I also 
I'm gonna invite you to be part of it. Friends, this is what we get to join in where Ephesians 2 says this, 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, what? Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is what God has been up to the whole time. How can we get back to that place of the overlap of heaven and earth? Jesus makes it possible. And right now we get a little taste of it. We are being built together as the people of God to be this holy temple that we might enjoy God dwelling with us. Like welcome to church. That's what we get to be part of. And as this passage concluded, we'll close with this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him a recipient of God's favor, his unmerited favor, a recipient of God's grace. He lives with a glad obedience. I don't know what the Lord is calling you to, but I do know this, like when we walk and surrender to the Lord and his will, that's the best possible way to live. Some years ago, we'll bring it full circle, children's Bible, not the awkward children's moment when I did not read that to my children growing up. Neither should you, by the way, just parental warning, all right? Um, but our older daughter is probably about three at the time, um, and we were reading the big picture story Bible, um, and we had recently read the story of Noah and the ark. And it talked about Noah right there, that Noah had obeyed, he had been obedient. And like we happen to have with kids every now and again, right? A moment of disobedience. And so I remember having to sit her down and be like, Sydney, mom and dad love you. And, you know, um, but this is, you, we asked you to do this and you didn't do, do this. And, and so we extended grace and forgiveness and mercy and kind of did, did that, that work. And we're like, do you, do you understand, right? Do you? And she looked me in the eyes and apparently in her subconscious had the children's Bible story, I think in her mind, because she literally looked right at me and she's like, dad, I will obey. I will build a boat. I was like, sure. I mean, I still haven't gotten the boat yet, but um, that childlike response of like, yeah, you, grace, I've experienced it. And like, yeah, I, let, let's walk this out. Like that's the life that we're invited into. And so friends, I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna continue in worship. I'll give some instruction in a moment about communion, but we get to walk up together and receive these elements. Be mindful of the fact that, that God is bringing about the overlap of heaven and earth. Like we, we get to dwell together. We get to be in the Lord's presence. We're doing that right here, right now. What a gift. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, your kindness toward us. Thank you that for us in Christ, we have found favor with you because of all that your son has accomplished. It's nothing, all we bring is our sin, our rebellion, we, <laughs> our depravity, but, but Lord, you are our deliverer. And so we thank you for that. And so God, I pray as we continue in this worship service, as we sing songs, as we pray, as we partake in this meal, God, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, that you bring conviction where it's needed. I pray you bring comfort where it's needed. Would you form us more and more into the temple, the dwelling place of God that you desire us to be, not only for our good, but God, ultimately for for your glory, the good of our neighbors, for our joy. Do this, Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.